what might it mean to give love? Like, what might it mean to find love in lots of different places? So I, I basically just realized, God, I've been getting it wrong for so many years. Hello, I'm Olivia Cummings, and on this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to the people who inspire me in my life and work as a jeweler, designer, and founder of Cleopatra's Bling. Natasha Lunn is a best-selling author whose passion is having conversations on love. Her weekly newsletter and her essay compilations of the same name help us understand how relationships function and how they grow through our lives. I started this project thinking, right, I'm single, I'm really lonely, I need to find other forms of love and prioritise them rather than thinking the romantic relationship is the be-all and end-all. Natasha has interviewed Alan de Botton, Esther Perel and Susie Orbach about love and I was delighted to have the opportunity to interview her. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri country and I pay my respects to all First Nations listeners. So I'm a little bit starstruck having you because I've just finished your book knowing that I would interview you. So I was paying more attention, underlining things. Oh, wow. (laughs) So yeah, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast and I'm sure that all my friends who've read your book and our followers will love it too. Well, thank you. I love hearing people have underlined things. Some people, um, you know, don't like to deface a book, but whenever I see on Instagram, people have underlined it. It makes me so happy. I love underlining. That's why I'm not really in the Kindle. I like the idea of being a Kindle girl. But I like having a book so I can like underline stuff and go back to it. Mm. But apparently you can also do that in Kindle, so I don't have an excuse, apparently. It's not the same though, is it? It's not the same. Well, to start with, congrats also on your newborn. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I hope it's going well and you're sleeping and not feeling too overwhelmed. Not sleeping, but I'm so used to not sleeping by now that it's uh, easier to take definitely this time around. Yeah. How old's your, your first? So she's just turned two. It's a crazy time. I'm definitely using a, a lot of the lessons from the book, put it that way. <laughs> I, I imagine. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about conversations on love and what, what it is to start with and what inspired you to, to write it. Well, before I wrote the book, I was writing an email newsletter, also called Conversations on Love. And that was um, pretty much like the interview format of the book speaking to experts and writers and authors and and pretty much people that I would sort of fangirl over and, and think that were, were a lot wiser than I was on the topic of love and speaking to them about all the different shapes that love takes in our life. So from friendships to siblings, to relationships, to family, to self-love. And kind of when I started doing those interviews, really realizing that it kind of grew even beyond that to like love between strangers and love in purpose, purposeful work and love in nature and I'd always thought I was somebody who was obsessed with love and had spent years and years obsessing over relationships. And I just realized that even though I poured hours and hours and hours and weeks and months into this topic, I knew very little about it. And somewhat embarrassingly, my approach to love was just very ego driven. It was all like, when will I find someone to love me? What will it feel like when I'm loved? Mm. And will I ever find love rather than you know, ever really contemplating what might it mean to give love? Like what might it mean to find love 
in lots of different places. So I I basically just realized, God, I've been getting it wrong for so many years. Um, even though I thought I'd been prioritizing love, I really hadn't. And so I was like, right, well, this is something that's so important to me, the most important thing in my life. You know, I'm sitting down every year at the beginning and thinking, okay, what's my career plan for this year? And how am I going to kind of get fit or get healthy? Or, But I hadn't really until that point sat down and thought, okay, well, how am I going to get better at loving? How am I going to this mm. year put more effort into this? So that was really the root of the project. Just me kind of being like, how can I get better at understanding love? And how can I get better at practicing it every day? That's really beautiful. I feel like what you're describing is kind of a typical byproduct of being brought up in a world that conditions us to think that we're only whole when we find someone to love us. So we have to like unlearn that. I'm not surprised that that was your focus because I think that's everyone's focus at some point. Definitely. And also I had parents who met when they were 15 and they do have this sort of sickening love story. where They sat next <laughs> to each other in art class when they were 15 never been in other relationships just very blissfully happy and having sort of witnessed the relationship up close like it really is pretty pretty good relationship so of course by the time I was 20 I was like well why haven't I met anyone yeah you know that was the sort of template I had so I think that that played into it as well definitely yeah that's fair enough um so you mentioned once that security can foster resentment can you talk a bit about the dynamics of this relationship between intimacy and impatience? Yes. And this is good timing for me because as I was saying, I've got a newborn and my partner's on shared leave. So we've got two months, two and a half months where we're basically living, not seeing anyone else, not sleeping, dealing with the two <laughs> children. And we're so close and it's so easy to to step slip into that impatience or frustration. Um, so I'm I'm really thinking a lot about that chapter in the book, but it really is about the idea that sadly, intimacy does allow us to treat the people closest to us with less kindness for many different reasons. One, obviously, the obvious one is that we feel safe enough to do that. So obviously, mm. at the beginning of a relationship, you don't feel secure. You're sort of presenting your best self to that other person. And, you know, you're you're treating them with kindness because you sort of, yeah, you want to put out your best version of yourself. You're not showing them the version of yourself that snaps at your mother when you're finding her annoying. Yeah. Or, But then, of course, as soon as you do get to that beautiful point where you trust in the love you have between you, annoyingly, that also allows you to then be meaner, really, because you feel safe enough to be mean and you don't necessarily think that they'll leave you if you're mean it's a really tricky thing because what should be a gift of the relationship the, the sort of trust and the security then becomes a sort of threat to it because you take it for granted and you can be mean I mean that's the obvious one and then something really interesting that um a couples therapist said to me is in the beginning something that sort of um, annoys you about the other person isn't really a threat to you because you're you're much more two individuals and their life is their life and, and your life is your life so if they're a bit messy well you're not necessarily living together and so you might see the mess and think oh that's a bit annoying but it's not in your space whereas mm. if their character flaws almost become 
a lot more terrifying to you when you have decided to enter into a relationship because you might think, well, would they be really messy if one day we were living together and we had kids and it's already difficult to keep on top of the mess? You know, all of a sudden you become, you're kind of responsible for each other's worlds in a way. And so the way you behave and the way you are in your day-to-day life becomes part of somebody else's life and that could be a bit scary. Um, And then the other thing she said to me is that with mess, you know, when you're dating, you might not even notice someone's mess because you're thinking, are we going to have sex tonight? Yeah, are we going to have sex tonight? Did I, Mm. which underwear did I wear? Or where's the bedroom? What's going to happen next? You're so sort of distracted by the excitement of what's unfolding that you're not nitpicking and looking around at the sort of details of mundane life Mm. in the same way. So, I mean, they're just a few of them, but there's, there's lots of different reasons. So, and, and you know, the way I write about it in the book is like, sometimes if you're really up close to a big painting, you can't take in the beauty of it. You sort of have to step back and see it from a bit of distance. And I think it's the same with another person. Sometimes when you're so close to each other and living in that close proximity that a lot of people did in lockdown, it can become Mm. difficult to have enough distance to see the other person as an individual and to sort of allow yourself to fall in love with them again, which is kind of ties back into the book's bigger message about why we need to love more than one person and and in more than one way. Yeah. It reminds me of something that my therapist said to me about a year ago. She asked me what boundaries meant to me and I had it flipped the wrong way. I was like, they're things that you create to protect yourself from other people. She had a field day with that answer, I bet. She did. Well, I I don't remember how I exactly answered it, but it was based. And then she basically just said, no, no, boundaries are the boundaries that you have with yourself so that you don't act badly and hurt somebody else. Mm. She's like, so that's how you know where your weak point is, your triggers. She's like, it's not anyone else's job to not trigger you. It's your job to not be triggered. She's like, so that's what, a, and so she really made me think, okay, yeah, it's all about self, like responsibility. Obviously that doesn't give people the green light to just treat you how they want. In this case, she was letting me know that a lot of people use, and me included back then, boundaries as actually a way to create a wall. Mm. You know what I mean? And to protect yourself unnecessarily rather than look at the sore point and be like, why am I acting this way? let yourself lower the bar. She's like, if you've lowered the bar and you're not proud of your behavior, that's where you should be creating a boundary. Someone said to me the other day that so much of love is just not saying the mean thing, not being cruel when you could, Mm. because in all our relationships, friendships, certainly with parents, you might start bickering, you might have a fight. And there's always the kind of terrible thing you could say when you know someone really well, like I know in my marriage, you know, there are things that we know are each other's secret insecurities that we could whip out and use in a fight because we know them. And so much Mm. of it is sort of catching yourself before you escalate into that cruel thing or mean thing or snap or impatience. And it's Mm. just, it's very, um, it's almost like just an exercise or a muscle that it's like a beat. I think of it as like, take one beat mm. before you say what you want to say it's like climbing back down yourself before mm. you get to that point because as soon as you say the mean thing then it's just there forever and 
I've done it once and it's just it's like a little splinter you can't quite get out so that's definitely part of it but what you're saying about how you felt like boundaries of what you put in place to protect yourself I guess that really is the first bit of the book which is about finding love was really about learning or learning to be yourself around another person and being vulnerable Mm. but then the middle section of the book is when you've done that complete and total honesty isn't always the kindest thing to somebody um and that's such a kind of tricky tricky area because I always used to think love was about telling every single thing you think to another person and them knowing you completely and you knowing them completely um but where I got to as much like there are so many corners and crevices of ourselves we don't understand the idea that we could ever wholly know another person is kind of crazy and I don't know about you but some something will happen in my life and I'll react in a certain way and I'll think oh that's really surprising that I'm so bothered by that or a friend said this to me why am I kind of so irritated by that you know I'm still figuring out all that myself um oh totally me too yeah and 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 that's kind of the beauty of it too now to me like the mystery of another person and yourself and Mm. you then you throw into the mix that you're always both changing um it is this constantly evolving thing that you can never really wholly know that's kind of relieving and humbling because it's like oh I don't have to get to any finishing point you know it's like I won't get it all done so it's okay and I also feel that once you have that kind of way of thinking about love you're less likely to sort of take your eye off the ball in a way that I Mm. think if you think oh I've completely got to know this person now and we've reached a state in our relationship where we've got that level of intimacy then you might feel like you can stop being curious about your partner or stop asking questions or stop um, doing new things together or stop trying to know Mm. each other. Whereas I think now I see it in this way that two people will always be some sort of mystery to each other. It makes me much more interested in how things are unfolding in the people I love. And even my parents, you know, with our parents, we have a version of them that we grew up with and we see them in this, you know, parental role. And then suddenly you you get older and you turn around and you're like, oh, my parents are people and I'm much more yeah. interested in knowing about them separate to their identity as a parent. That happened to me a few years ago. I was like, whoa, <laughs> life before me and my brothers. Like it's crazy that we don't think about that until we become adults. Mm, I know. And they allow us to be so selfish for those teenage years. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It also, I think for me, highlights living in Turkey and the south of Italy for so long and being around such community-minded people, it also highlighted to me like how nuclear Australia is. Mm. Sure, it's the same in the UK. And I came, when I moved back to Australia just a couple of years ago, I remember thinking, this is so insular, like, and it creates such a pressure on a couple Mm. as well you've talked in your book about the importance of retaining a life and love outside of the nuclear family. Obviously it's a bit different now with a newborn, but like maybe more symbolically how you think people can attain that or achieve that in their own lives. Well, actually not that different with a newborn because it almost, um, 
mirrors for me that sort of you know when you're falling in love in a romantic relationship and you might you might have had friends who you see every weekend and suddenly you're not seeing them as much and yeah I think it's a kind of slippery time when you can um just get too distracted and of course friends and family allow you a little bit of fun distraction in that falling in love time but it's similar with the newborn phase of um I think there'll always be these moments in your life when it's very easy to sort of slip away from other forms of or, or let other forms of love slip out of your life and actually mm. whilst I don't um have loads of time now to kind of go out for a night out with my friends I'm very aware of how easy it is to let people slide in this period so my challenge really is that now thinking okay well if I can't be there at a certain day what am I gonna is there another way that I can kind of sustain that friendship even if it is something as like boring as a zoom call or um Mm. you know just sending something in the post or just finding some way to say through a gesture okay I know I can't be there physically right now I know this is kind of a time in our friendship when things are gonna maybe have to take a bit of a back seat but I still love you and you know I'm really looking forward to a time when I can be there again Mm. whereas I think before writing the book I would have maybe just felt really guilty about not being there and that guilt would have made me think oh they're probably annoyed at me um and I, I don't I feel too awkward to message them and and then it would have become this um place where it's a lot harder to get back to each other mm. so yeah it's interesting you asked me about this now because I actually think it's those times are even more important to get creative about how you keep connecting with people but yeah back to your question is I I guess I started this project thinking right I'm single I'm really lonely I need to find other forms of love and prioritize them rather than thinking the romantic relationship is the be all and end all. So that was my thinking. But now I, of course, realize that it's not just when you're single, it's just as important when you're in a relationship to think in that way as well. Because yeah, it's just too much pressure. I don't Mm. expect my husband to be the person who I talk about Taylor Swift for hours with, (laughs) nor would I ever (laughs) want him to be. Or he's not the person that I sit down and get really excited about writing on my career with because I've got a friend who I do that with and that's actually a deep pleasure we share that I don't share with him. And he's got lots of different, you know, those stereotypes about um, men not being as good at making friendships, but really not the way with my husband. He's got so many friends and he's always sort of um, seeing them or chatting to them or finding ways So just... I think that's why our relationship feels easier than a lot of ones in the past because we're not reliant on each other for every form of pleasure or interest. Mm. With children, for me, I love being a mother, but I also love not being, you know, when I'm around friends, I and and kind of it's a way to protect that other version of yourself that your kids don't see or maybe not even your partner might see there's nothing to Mm. do with being a mother and nothing to do with being a girlfriend or a wife and it might even be seeing your childhood friends and giggling about something you know feeling like a teenager again I love when I'm around my um really friends from childhood so it's just a way to feel like all versions of you are being seen really and a good example to your kids. 
Yes. So I think you're more resilient as a child if you've got that openness in the parents. And it's really fun as a kid being kind of getting to know your parents' friends, isn't it? Now I'm mm. I'm close to some of my parents' friends and they're really important relationships yeah. to me, especially Same as from- yeah, I would the idea that my parents would have given up all their friendships for me. You know, I, I actually think it was less common in that generation because they weren't so child-centered in their parenting. They really just dragged you along mm. to the pub or the party or whatever. And not, you know, that style of parenting had a lot of flaws too. But they certainly um my parents had me in my tw- in their 20s and they, you know, their whole life was still very much centered around friendships and just throwing all the kids together and being not just the little family on your own, but lots of families together. Yeah, that's so nice. On the topic of maintaining love, I want to talk about examples of people loving through the screen. Have you seen young people coming of age, like during the pandemic especially, struggling with this or what sort of what's your experience with this? I think from people I've spoken to, there was sort of two very different experiences during the pandemic of one people who were in relationships and found it quite stifling because they did lose mm. that other so you're almost just forced to be the two of you and that kind of brought about its own challenges another group of people who were either looking for love or even just single and didn't want a relationship but suddenly had those other forms of connection stripped away you know, with these things, there's exception to everything. Because I know a couple of people who did meet on Zoom on online dating and then moved to um, just talking on the phone and then started relationships during that time. And in a way, kind of sped up almost because... Really? Yeah, the the two relationships I know move quite quickly. Um, I think because there's nothing, there wasn't anything else going on in your life. So, you know, when you start dating somebody, you might be well, I've got this party and I've got this and I can't see you for this time and I can't speak and life sort of gets in the way. But there wasn't any of that. So I think there was the potential for things to move quite quickly was because you're not doing anything else. You can't really make an yeah. excuse not to, not to see someone in lockdown. In lockdown, um, this is true. I guess it would have forced the emotional connection as well, like if it was there. Or you find out quick, pretty quickly that it's not there. Yeah. See, I met my um, husband on a dating app. Now it just feels like it was just another way to facilitate meeting somebody. And I'm so grateful um, because I don't think that we would have met any other way. I think, you know, Mm. even though we live quite close by, if if I was at the pub, I'd just be like engrossed with the conversation with my friends or something. I don't think um, necessarily would have happened. It's funny. I I did approach the book thinking, right, I'm going to learn everything about love and I'm going to have all these tools in my relationship and I'm going to be the best wife and friend and partner. Like at the moment, you know, I do snap and I do slip into the impatience and I treat my husband unkindly, even though I know I shouldn't, all these things. I'm like, damn it, (laughs) back to the book and back Mm. to this lesson. You know, in a strange way, after you have a fight with a partner, even if it's just bickering, there's this sort of patch of you know, it's slightly raw and it's slightly delicate. And it was um, David Sedaris who said this to me, actually, that you can feel at those moments, like, oh, we almost broke that. And it's so delicate. And I, I love you so much. I can't believe we walked up to that point. And there's mm. something about um, kind of constantly 
making those decisions and trying to sort of having some distance and then finding a way back to each other, getting irritated and then climbing back down. That sort of work of love brings you closer and and as part of the fabric of a relationship makes it stronger, I think, because then when big, big mm. things do hit, you've got better practice at at just kind of finding new ways to reach each other. Yeah, like the repair stage after the argument is just as important as the lessons of the argument. Yeah. And I, I think that has been the biggest thing that's changed for me since I've started doing these interviews. And so I'll, I'll give you an example of the other day. Um, I can't even remember what we were bickering about. Just who who had more sleep is the general um, <laughs> the general <laughs> thing at the moment. Like you had two hours here, you had one at home. And I don't know, just we were just being, um, you know, snappy, not nothing big, just domestic stuff or something. And I was about to leave the house. And before I'd done this project, I would have just walked out and been a bit huffy. But I just was like, oh, even though I don't want to, even though it's excruciating, I just walked over to him and I was like, I love you. I don't know why I'm, I don't, I'm not really even annoyed at you. I don't know why we're being like this. And he was, he said, I know I'm not even annoyed. And we just kissed and it was just that moment of stepping outside of the fight or the bickering or the resentment and realizing that you don't even really care about it anyway. Mm. But it's just a bit of pride sometimes it takes to be the one that um, walks over and says, I love you. And I feel like I'm much better at doing that now with friends too. Yeah. And it reminds me of, do you know Terry Real? No. So he wrote a book, I think it's called Us or We. It's one of those. And he says, if someone wins an argument, then the couple hasn't won. Mm. And he said, it's not about being right or wrong. He said, the re- the relational approach to an argument is like, how can we make this better for both of us? And it's not about someone saying you're right or you're wrong. And then someone feeling like they've triumphed. And he said, that's patriarchy that wants to triumph. And I don't mean men. I mean, like women can be patriarchal as well and want to win. But he said in the paradigm of the patriarchal world that we live in, the masculine, I should say, wants to dominate, which we all do, I think, in an argument. And he says, but relationally that can't work and that's what leads to the breakdown of a relationship because at the end of the day my experience will be so different from yours so it doesn't matter mm. really what I think or what I feel and if it's right or wrong to you it's just what I think or feel and so there has to be room for that. So much of a relationship I think is is sort of loosening your grip on the way you think things should be. So even, um, I don't know, about like I was talking, I was interviewing somebody the other day who was talking about um, another couple therapist, just couples, different approaches to the washing up. Like somebody might have grown up in a family where you leave the dishes till the next day. And the other person might have grown up in a family where you do them straight away or that's seen as a bit of a failure or just Mm. a bit slovenly. And so that this small thing, you both think that your way of doing it is right based on how you've grown up and all these different stories you have from your parents or or other places. You have to both sort of loosen your grip on that. And maybe one person can say, oh, well, if it irritates you, we can you know, I'll do them a bit sooner. And then but the other person can also say, well, you know what, in the grand scheme of a life, 
it's not going to kill anyone if they stay there for a few more hours. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's it's not just in arguments, is it? It's just about kind of questioning what you assume, you know, is right in in yeah. domestic life and in, in all aspects of life. Definitely, which actually leads nicely into my next question, which is why do you think each one of us loves so differently? Well, I think the way in which we express love is different, but I think from interviewing people from like age 80 to 20s to people of who have all different um, desires, I, I do feel like there is a very common, like a lot of the ways we love are more similar really than I thought coming into this. And so mm. many of the things that I would write that I'd think, oh, nobody else feels this way or does it this way. I get so many letters from people being like, you were inside my head, you described my exact experience. So mm. I do think that there are ways in which we express love different, but there's something that we all share about needing connection and fearing loneliness and that can express itself individually, but is a very universal approach to love. But in terms of why we express love differently, I mean, we're all individuals, aren't we? And and look at anything else we do in our lives, we wouldn't expect it to be the same. And I, and I think the reason that we get to that point is because we're raised in all these different ways and all our experiences are so different and our rejections are so different. And all those things, you know, the way your parent told you off when you were five and then the text message that your first boyfriend dumped you with and all these sort of tiny mm. tiny details are knitted together to create a way that you desire to be loved and the way that you feel love and the way that you feel insecure and all these different things so there's no way that um those experiences are ever going to be the same even if they are the same it's like the order in which they happen can change so much and that's a rambling way of saying like I think the way we love is different is because love is very complicated and it taps into so many of our fears and desires and mm. past experiences that um, is, is always going to be changed and impacted by them. Yeah. It's kind of similar to the, I really liked your chapter on sibling love because mm. I think it's really easy to pigeonhole your sibling based on what your dynamic was as a child, despite, you know, you've, ha you've got obviously got the same parents and love role models, but then you're completely different at the end mm -hmm. of the day. I found that one a really interesting one to read also because of my own brothers, but just realizing that I need to give them space to evolve outside of what I projected onto them from childhood. Yeah. And, and also how you, how you can have different childhoods in the same family yeah yeah the sibling sibling love is one of my favorite forms of love I'm very close to my brother and again before doing this project yeah obviously I knew I loved him but I didn't necessarily see that as a form of love in my life that I should put effort into because it's like oh well you've always been there and you sort yes. of have to always be there. And now I know obviously some Unconditional. people. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, obviously some people are estranged and, and it doesn't work like that. But there mm. is, a again, a safety there of like, even if we fight, we'll see each other at Christmas. Um, 
my brother lives two rows down so I see him a lot more than that but you you know what I'm saying there there is this sort of safety net of the family that means that you you're kind of always confident that you're going to reconcile um yeah so again it can allow you to be meaner to them than you would to a friend because obviously with a friend if you go through a rough patch and you fight like there's a chance you could just stop speaking to each other and not see each other again whereas with your sibling no matter how mean you are to them it feels like you'll always come back to each other I don't know are your brothers younger or older I'm middle so younger and older yeah so mine's younger and I certainly had to go through that that phase of being like well he's not my little brother anymore he's he's an adult man and he's married and he's very different to the little brother that like ripped my teddy and uh when we <laughs> when we were six or you know who I'd be like making mud pies with in the river like he's not there are traces of that person in him now but he's not that mm. person as an adult so really it's up to me to not just see him around my parents and talk about the same stories that we've always talked about which is fun as well but really to find out what interests him now and who he is and the things that he's worried about and I I just think it's very easy not to do that I agree we can be quite complacent with family yeah and also it's something about that person you know they've kind of got all the dirt on you as well like I I know my brother kind of can call me out like if I'm just being silly or just like pretentious or I don't know like putting on an act he can really call me on it and I love that about the relationship but at certain points in your life that can feel quite um confronting I agree with particularly my little brother he can cut through in a really kind way but really just Mm. cut the bullshit and I'm like oh god can't get away Mm. with much I want to talk about what role secrets play in love secrets is an interesting word isn't it because even as you say that it comes with um slight like sexy danger I'm gonna say like even the word itself reminds me of France um I lived in Paris for six years and a big part of French culture is this notion of the jardin secret which means the secret garden and it's kind of a culturally accepted sort of concept that you'll always have secrets look I'm not gonna go into Mm -hmm. what they could be and I'm not gonna like put them into a hierarchy but you know from affairs to all kinds of secrets from my experience in living in France that was those were the things that would fall into the category of the secret garden interesting ever since living there I was only I moved there when I was 18 to 24 so I was young but I remember being quite disturbed by that idea at the time Mm. obviously now the idea of cheating and having secrets like that still disturbs me but the idea of having things that you don't necessarily tell the other person I mean maybe the word secrets a little bit misleading no, I think it's interesting. It, you know, I asked Esther Perel about this. It's coming back to me now. I don't, I didn't actually think I put it in the book, but um, I sort of said to her, like going back to what I was saying before, I used to think love was telling every single thought that was mm. in your head to the other person and them telling every single thought to you. And I said to Esther Perel, I was like, well, if you have something like you're attracted to a colleague and you're not going to do anything about it because you're really in love and you're never going to, you know, you don't want to risk your relationship and you don't even 
want to be in a relationship with that other person, you just feel there is that sort of slight um, attraction that you're not going to act on. Is that something that you come home and say to your partner, look, I'm not going to do anything about it, but being totally honest, I have this slight attraction for a colleague. And she, she was no. saying, yeah, she, she's, well, she's very clever. And, you know, with her, they never say yes or no. I'm exact. Um, <laughs> everybody's different. But she said, you have to ask yourself sometimes why you are, you know, in that instant, is it, is it you want to alleviate yourself of the guilt for even feeling attracted to someone to tell the other person, even though it might hurt them? Is that useful? Is that for their benefit or is that for your benefit? And I certainly think now after kind of having these conversations for a longer time, of course there are things that we don't tell our partners. Like it's it's kind of like what we were saying earlier about not saying the mean and cruel thing. We're we're very like complicated people who sometimes have like mean thoughts and sometimes think cruel things or sometimes have weird mm. fantasies. And I don't think that it is always helpful to share every single detail of those things with somebody else. Yeah, agreed. Because who is it serving? And and just because you don't say every kind of mean or dangerous thought that comes into your head doesn't mean that you're any less close to that person. If anything, it's you sort of taking responsibility for your emotions a bit more and maybe not sharing something with them that might hurt them or might Mm. not be of any use or not might not bring you closer. When I was younger, I would have probably said, you know, I would have found the idea of secrets really threatening in a relationship because I'd be like, yeah. Whereas now I think I'm much more comfortable with the fact that of course my partner is going to be attracted to many different people who are not me, just as I will be walking through this world. You know, you're crazy if you think you're Mm. going to walk through this life and never be attracted to another being, but I I don't want to know about (laughs) every one of them, (laughs) you know? Um, And that's just one example. But, um, you know, even I'm trying to think of other things like, maybe you feel a certain way about their family member that slightly you might say something to your friend that's a bit mean even that's not something that you need to share with somebody else and I know for me I can criticize my family you know a lot but if somebody else did it's it's really hurtful so I think that's another example of something I wouldn't feel like I wanted someone to share with me even if we're both sitting there thinking, oh, my dad's annoying. I don't, I don't need them to yeah, share that with judgment. me. Yeah. I don't know. What do you, cool. what, how do you feel? I agree. I think like there's, there are different, also like, not to get too complex here, but there are different levels of secrets, obviously. Mm. Anything that's deceitful that is obviously outside of the contract, so to speak, of the relationship should be be said because then otherwise the person can't make a decision as to how they want to move forward yeah you know big big life stuff but small stuff like oh he's put on one kilogram that's a good example yeah you know or like he's looking a bit tired today but he's going for a hard time like why would you say you look really tired you Mm -hmm. know something that's going to add to the the burden or yeah there's this hot guy at work I'm not going to tell him oh there's this new hot guy at work (laughs) like you know things like that that are just going to make insecurities resentments or trust Mm. issues I think you don't need to say because look if it's just a fleeting thing you think about chances are in two days you'll be over it anyway Mm. and then 
That's what's the point of bringing that up because the other person won't be over it in two days. I guess what, what was also important when you said that that's like outside of the contract of your relationship, part of this conversation is thinking that it might be useful to talk about what you see as part of that contract oh, yeah. word, isn't it? Because I, I know for some people, I think I'm, I feel like I'm very clear on where that boundary is on what's deceitful and what's not, but there might be circumstances where one of you feels like something is stepping mm. over a line and something's not. Um, so that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so many different, you know, how yeah. do you even begin to negotiate that? And for me, I feel like it is a feeling like you, you really know, um, but maybe that's naive and maybe there are some things that it's good to talk about. And you say, well, I don't mind you sort of flirting with someone in a kind of meaningless way. But mm. if you ever sent an email or sent a message to them, that would be very different. You know, things like that. Yeah. It's, it's quite complicated in relationships To You need clarification for sure, I'd say. I want to just read a quote from your book to end and then we can talk about this. So this is the, the um, How Do We Sustain Love chapter. I feel like such a nerd pulling out your book. Underline. No, no. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, what have I written? <laughs> It says, love is not a state of enthusiasm. It's a verb. It implies action, demonstration, ritual, practices, communication, expression. It's the ability to take responsibility of one's own behavior. Responsibility is freedom. Mm. So that is Esther Perel's answer, I think, to that question. I think yeah, so. Yeah, I think so. And I would just of say... Of course, I'm obsessed with her as well. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's great. I would say... Um, basically how to put into action what she's saying there. And this has really changed the way I am in relationships. So she, she says, if somebody comes to her and says, I love my partner, she will say to them, well, that's all very well, but how are you going to show it? Like actually feeling it is, is not enough. It's not, it's mm. kind of pointless if you never demonstrating it. And so now I always think that of my friends, of my partner, of my parents, like if I, you know, sometimes I'll be somewhere or something will happen in the day and I'll think, oh, I love that person so much. But then I'll get distracted and I'll, I'll never tell them and it will just sort of slip away. So I try and think that all the time. I'm like, well, if I feel in love with this friend, what am I going to do to show them? Like they're not in my mind. They don't necessarily know that that's the case. Just because you kind of told each other you loved each other once or just because at one point in life, you shared something that was really close. You still need to find new ways all the time to demonstrate love for people. Um, yeah. And I try and hope I'm a bit better at doing that now, but um, I certainly try to be better. Let's all try to be better. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, it was so lovely to speak to you. Where can our listeners find your work and stay in touch with what you're up to? You can follow Conversations on Love on Instagram, which is at conversations underscore on underscore love. And I'm at Natasha Chloe Lunn. Um, and through the Conversations on Love Instagram, you can find the newsletter where I'll be kind of continuing to interview people. In the Subscribing meantime. straight after this call. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, it's been such an honour to interview you. Thank you so much, especially a week after I finished the book. Thank you so much. And thank you for such um, thoughtful questions they've definitely made me think about things in new ways too this podcast was produced by zoltan fetcho and the cleopatra's bling team with original music by cameron alva 
If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. We have glorified these brands that have scaled in three to five years, but again, there's the exception. And I think we're all chasing that and we are forsaking the things like really what we care about. Until next time, stay curious. Thank you.